Welcome to the BIM Academy podcast series on the digital climate. I'm Peter Barker, Managing Director of BIM Academy, and in this series, I'm going to be talking to some pioneering minds who are championing sustainability in the built environment. We're going to cross continents to get an international perspective on how digital engineering and sustainability can come together to help in the fight against climate change. Thank you for taking the time to join our conversation. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our uh, armchair interview, How Can Digital Help Combat the Global Climate Emergency? Uh, I'm delighted to be joined today by Claire Bowles. Claire uh, is an Associate Regenerative Development Lead in I2C Architects in Melbourne, Australia. Claire's Master's Degree in Strategic Project Management and experience as a construction improvement consultant in the UK gives Claire a broad base from which to bring stakeholders together and drive innovative thinking around regenerative and living systems design. So welcome, Claire. Got a few questions for you. So I'll, uh, I'll just kick off with the first one. In your experience as a sustainability champion, how can we better implement the use of digital design tools in construction processes to combat climate change? Well, first of all, thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. Um, delighted to be here this afternoon. Um, as I am meeting with you from Australia and from Indigenous lands, I'd just like to make an acknowledgement that I'm meeting with you from the lands of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation and like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Um, so back to your question, how do I think digital technologies can assist um, I guess, in towards uh, climate action and and helping us out in this bit of mess that we're in. Um, I think sometimes we're all too quick to sort of jump for a technological solution. I think we've probably got all of the technologies and tools that we actually need in order to get ourselves out of um, this mess. But probably what we haven't got is the will, whether that's the political will sometimes or the will within individuals or even project teams to actually have those difficult conversations up front with clients um, and really set, set the targets that we need to set in order to drive sustainability on projects. And I think, honestly, I think that's what's missing. I think when, when we have that, the tools can assist us greatly. But first of all, we've got to get it right. We've got to actually be aiming for, for sustainable outcomes on our projects. So talking about digital tools is really the sort of, um, it's the other end of the iceberg, as it were. It's the it's low down the pecking, pecking order, low down the food chain in terms of priority. Um, what we really need is a is a will and a spirit from government um, to to drive policies which are meaningful. Um, I think you and I talked recently about um, methods of procurement being a strong sort of catalyst for change. Obviously, that comes down the pecking order as well. Um, but um, often we see technology being thrown at a problem, uh, digital tools being seen as a panacea, whereas they are actually fairly low, low priority. They are just a toolbox to do the job. Um, and I think, um, I think maybe uh, you know, policy and uh, sort of procurement procedural aspects are probably far more, more important. I don't know if yeah, that's how you see, see things in Australia. Yeah, I think it is. And I think it's almost like, um, you know, we've been we've been doing things in this extractive mechanistic way in construction for a long time. And really what we need to start seeing is is a shift in the way that we work, a shift in the way that we 
look to provide these assets for users um, and really a shift in thinking about, you know, how can the designs that we're producing basically change the way that people behave and change the way that people live. Um, we all know there are numerous examples of being able to design for active lifestyles. You can design for sustainable lifestyles. You can design to shift the way that people are in the world, the way that they relate with each other um, and the way that they interact. It, I'd, you know, personally, I'd like to see us upfront asking those questions about what, what role can a building play? You know, what can it do in terms of transforming and the people who use the building, the community that interact and relate with that building, um, and how can it have a ripple effect out into society and actually transform the way that we are, the way that we care about our environment. Um, I think something that we, we definitely need to be looking more towards is actually how do we bring people back in contact with nature? I mean, we're highly urbanized. We have so many people living in cities with relatively little contact with nature and it's no wonder that there's little care if you, it's not something you're experiencing day in day out. Do you think there are any lessons that we could learn from how that whole approach that you've just mentioned has been um, addressed in, in, in other parts of the world or in, in other scales of project you know smaller communities perhaps um, you, know, you mentioned about urbanization and, and you know a lot of us so you know, living in cities and whether there's lessons we can learn from precedents elsewhere um, in, in, in smaller smaller communities. Well, I think there are, there are some really good precedents and probably one of the biggest levers that I've seen over the last sort of five years in sustainability and around regenerative design has been the Living Building Challenge. And that's, you know, the most holistic green building certification that there is, but it's not only that, it's, it's a philosophy and an advocacy tool. Um, that that looks at everything from place-based design through to materials, ethical sourcing, low-carbon materials, um, local sourcing of labour and um, supplies. Um, and that has had some exceptional projects. Um, there's an exceptional project in New Zealand where they worked with the local um, Tuho people and um, all of the labour was sourced from the local community um, it brought the community together as a project um, and the materials were sourced locally as well. And then there are lots of examples like that where building projects are an opportunity to develop capacity within a local community. Um, and I think that's something that we're starting to see here. Uh, Living Building Challenge is growing here and I think we'll only see more and more of the projects across the world. Um, there's a great uh, commercial case study, which is the Bullet Centre in Seattle, um, and that one's been fantastic in the sense that it, you know, disproved the myth that you couldn't do a six-story mixed-use development that was um, net zero water, net zero energy, um, uh, with you know low low embodied carbon materials. Um, it's been a great case study. When you talked about uh, locally sourced materials and, and locally sourced labour, um, I'm wondering if there's a, essentially a tension between um, industrialization and mass production of, of products and the ability to deliver smaller scale, more locally, um, locally sourced um, materials and labour on, on projects and whether, um, have we got the balance right? You know, modern methods of construction um, often uh, as a concept envisages 
you know, factories delivering large bulk bulk orders of components to sites around countries and whether a more locally um, sourced um, material supply chain is, is maybe an answer to that. I don't know how we get the balance between those two things. Yeah, I think it's it's complex, isn't it? Because we are living in an industrialised age and that's part of the, the issue and part of the contributing factor towards climate change. Um, and ultimately, construction used to be a craft. We used to be have local supply chains. Um, and I think there is some value in looking at relocalising um, and relocalization generally. I mean, if there's one thing we've seen in COVID is probably that actually relocalization is not a bad idea um, for local economies as well as our local environment and people actually becoming more connected with the place where they live and work and people and community. Um, you know, climate change is an issue with so many different aspects to it. It's, it's no longer only about reducing carbon or reducing energy. Um, so it's interesting to think about, well, actually, how can, how can buildings be more than just a building? How can they educate and inspire and, and teach, you know, the users and the community who will engage with that building? And I think that's something that Living Building Challenge does really well. Yeah, that leads on to another question, really, about your perspective in Australia. Um, do you think there are things which industry and government there are doing differently, uh, maybe to the rest of the world, uh, to improve how we address the climate emergency uh, in the built environment? I think I think it's interesting in Australia because we we have the um, you know we have this profound history of um, our First Nations people, and um, we have you know this there is a connection there to land and country and um it's something that i think has has generated a lot of interest around um place-based design and regenerative design um and so we're starting to see a lot of emphasis around how do you design with land how do you consider um what the land was pre-development and how do you bring some of that back to life through your designs do you think um, do you think we're getting it right and accurately predicting the environmental performance of our buildings currently? Um, and are you seeing signs of progress in the intelligent use of digital tools in predicting and measuring building performance? So much evidence of that in Australia. Yeah, I think I think in terms of sort of predicting the energy performance, it's always an interesting one, isn't it? Because it so much depends on actually how the how the building is ultimately used by the occupiers. I think. Um, but I think we are seeing an emergence and growth of Passive House, um, which seems to have made its way here, which is great. And I think that's probably one of the best in terms of, you know, um, the accuracy between design and actually what you get as built, just because of its rigor and, um, and the fact that you're actually using the Passive House um, design tool to interrogate the design up front and, and, and get it sort of all all sorted up front, if you like. Um, that's definitely a step in the right direction. But for me, there's always this, this balance between, you know, a thermally performing building and, and also things like the, um, the embodied carbon within those materials. So which is more important, that we're reducing the energy use within that building 
or that we're reducing the embodied carbon in the materials that are used for that high performing building. So for me, there's always that little contradiction in my mind of, of when we do finally get grids that are all renewables, which is the most important aspect that we should be focusing on. Just touching on passive house there, um, I think for, for a number of years, it was maybe regarded as a, a bit of a niche, um, small scale approach to uh, sustainable design. And, and do you think it's scalable and, and, and um, relevant and applicable to, to larger scale projects? Have we seen much evidence of that? Yeah, so I think it's definitely scalable. And we've seen that in the US, there's some pretty big um, uh, projects that have come out from, from the US and in Europe. And actually, some interesting projects in Canada as well in multifamily sort of buildings. Um, I think what's interesting for me is that yes, passive house is great in terms of energy. And yes, it's great in terms of air quality and comfort, but how is it addressing all of the other aspects of sustainability? And I don't think it is. I think it's a passive house plus for me. There always has to be something else that's going along with it. Um, just to ensure that we're really addressing health in the most holistic sense. So planetary health, community health and individual health. I think if we zone in just on energy, we're in danger of completely tripping ourselves up and missing out on all these other crises that are that mm. are hanging in the midst, you know, um, social issues, health issues, um, toxic materials and ethical supply chains. Those types of issues are not being addressed within passive house and and some of the materials that are, are being used for passive house buildings have high embodied carbon so it's mm. working out the balance i guess uh, between that for me but yes it is scalable yeah i think it's important for particularly those in the design community as well as in in architecture and design buildings to, to to have that awareness that whilst you know it's a very rigorous approach um and very commendable it's it's not it's not the big it's not the whole picture um and also i think, you so. I think people get um everyone seems to, they get very excited about it you know it's building physics it's science you can prove it it's it's uh, exciting in that sense but i think um it doesn't overcome some of the issues that we have in terms of lack of connection with nature in terms of healthy materials um and in terms of, of building community necessarily. Why, why should we be rigorous in, in the design of our buildings when we've got a low, low carbon grid and we've got offsetting? Yeah. Uh, I just wonder what and your think, thoughts are on those subjects. It's interesting, isn't it? It seems to be that there is that, you know, offsetting is, a, is always a tricky subject. I'd, I'd much rather see um, projects actually delivering benefit within the site or community where the project's based rather than choosing an offsetting option which somehow makes it easy for them to turn a blind eye to whatever happens to be going on within their project um you know i don't know if you can call it onsetting but i'd much rather see the gains for the project rather than elsewhere um and yeah i think it is a problem i think it's a problem that people can purchase their way out necessarily hmm. Bringing the subject back to sort of the aspects of digital that, that uh, uh, can benefit these processes. Um, I think what we're saying with, with the design of buildings is we've still got a long way to go for us to be able to um, apply these digital tools in a more 
a more consistent, I suppose, and rigorous way on our on our designs. Um, you know, and I, which I think comes back to you know, client mandates, government mandates. Um, I think the tools themselves are probably in a good position in terms of their interoperability. Uh, there are lots of problems uh, in that, um, but I think that as, as, as designers, we shouldn't take our eye off the ball in terms of working hard to make the best of using analytical tools in our in our designs. You know, having data about embodied carbon in, in, in object libraries and in in material libraries in in, in BIM models. Um, and I think you know the industry is getting there, but it's it's still a slow process. But I think we've got to keep focus on on doing that and you making use of those tools. I think it's incredibly important, especially in terms of embodied carbon of materials and enabling designers to make those informed decisions about actually the what will happen if they substituted different materials and how that would impact the carbon balance on the project. And it's it's really good if that information is accessible early in the design process and um, before designs are locked in so that you can actually go back to the client and say, well, actually, if we do it this way, we're going to reduce X, Y, and Z on our projects. And it's a powerful tool in that sense um, in terms of informing and educating yeah, around options. Yeah, I think it, it traditionally or in recent years, um, we have seen design analysis using digital tools happening too late in the process and maybe just done as a one-off exercise, by which time it's too late to do anything about it. Um, I think what we're starting to see now is is the more agile use of, of tools in the earlier um, concept design stage where you know, designs can be tested and analyzed and optimized through the, the use of those tools, which is, you know, it's great progress, but I think there's still a way to go. There, yeah, I think there is still a way to go. And I think um, traditionally here in Australia, what would happen is you'll end up with uh, a sustainability consultant coming in further down the line who's responsible for energy modelling and embodied carbon calcs. And it's it's too late and it's not integrated within um, the project team up front. And I think that's where, where things fall down. I mean, we've touched on some of these um, themes already, but um, let's just jump to one of the other questions I have, which is why do you think the construction industry generally has not been great in tackling some of the issues contributing to climate change? And do you think uh, reluctance to adopt new technologies is partly to blame? Hmm. I think construction industry has always been very slow to adapt and change. If you think about the fact that um, I think BIM was first mentioned in 2010 in the low carbon construction report, the whole basis for, for mandating BIM was to reduce carbon emissions associated with construction. Now, I'm not sure whether or not it's been, been effective in, in doing that. And that's sort of 11 years ago. I'm not sure what your views might be, Peter, but I think it's it has come a long way, but I'm not sure that it's had a massive impact on carbon reduction. I know that our carbon emissions are still climbing. So um, I'd be interested to know sort of why it hasn't, hasn't had the desired effect that we'd hoped it would. Um, and I think also construction is a very fragmented sector um, with lots of organizations, quite traditional organizations working in silos each doing their own own bit. Um, 
And one of the good things about BIM, I guess, is that it, it has actually promoted integrated project delivery and bringing people together to collaborate. So I think it has been a tool that's enabled more collaboration, but we're not, we're not there yet. Um, I mean, the interesting pockets of innovation that I'm seeing are sort of these multidisciplinary practices where um, you have teams all working together as an integrated project team, um, you know, using effective tools and setting good sustainability targets up front on projects. And through that integrated delivery, they're actually able to achieve some pretty astounding outcomes. Mm. And uh, those projects you mentioned, what was the the impetus or the catalyst for, for those teams coming together? Was it just that they felt on that project they wanted to work collaboratively, they all got on really well, and that was how it, how it all sort of ensued from there? Or, or was it driven by a client directive, or was it driven by forms of procurement? Do you think... Um, how, how was that addressed? Well, I think I've seen it. I've seen it come together where you have something driving the project to to really deliver above and beyond. So, if it's a flagship project, if it's a project that's going for Living Building Challenge, for example, which really requires um, everyone to be working in collaboration. You know, when you're trying to get a project to net zero water, net zero energy. Um, and net zero carbon, that requires some serious collaboration across your project teams. And it can't really be delivered unless you are working as an integrated team. Um, and I think it's incredibly important in terms of efficiency, but also, um, you know, in terms of getting those sustainability outcomes on projects. Mm. Yeah, I think whilst there are you know, collaborative forms of contract in existence. Um, I think in the early days of BIM adoption in, in, in the UK, you mentioned obviously that there was actually a very big focus on carbon uh, with an equal equal focus on, on cost reduction. It was obviously mm. BIM in the UK emerged from the um, economic crisis of the late 2000s. Um, and um, I think the, the carbon reduction aspect of it seems to have got lost in, in, in the taste yes. to uh to to look for those uh cost reductions in the period of austerity that followed um and i think we, we do need to remind ourselves about that um but one of the other aspects of of um improving the industry in the uk at the time was also looking at collaborative forms of, of um, procurement um integrated project delivery um but there's We've not really seen a huge amount of, of, of um, progress in that, on that front. There's a lot of voluntary or, or um, I suppose, um, token gesture uh, forms of contract towards that, that aim. Um, but maybe that is the, one of the catalysts to, to almost compel people to work in a much more collaborative way, share the rewards, um, financial and, and, and the carbon, and share the risks, yeah. Are you seeing any evidence of, of the use of um, IoT, smart sensors and, and, the, and the like in, in buildings to help to monitor things like air quality, CO2, and even potentially uh, um, measuring or, or helping to support people's understanding of their well-being in, in the workplace or in the home even? Um, yeah, I think there's actually a lot of that. Um, there's a growth in... Um monitoring around uh, air quality, but also monitoring for sort of space utilization, understanding how spaces are used, when they're used, um, 
And I think that that aspect of monitoring with sensors is actually incredibly effective at looking at behavioral patterns of people and um, understanding, you know, how to optimize spaces um, and, you know, how to be efficient in the use of use of spaces. Um, it's something that we we've, we've been doing in the office for a while. It's just monitoring the air air quality and certainly when we had the bushfires, which was when was that now last year, early last year, um, the air quality was horrific. And we were actually finding that those passive house buildings, interestingly, were protected from that dreadful um, air quality that others were experiencing. So, you know, another plus for that rigor in design and for the, the air quality that can be achieved through something like passive house, I think. Um, yeah, that's a real plus. Okay, thanks. Um, I think we're, we're probably, um, it was the end of the conversation, but uh, any final thoughts um, in terms of what we've learned from, well, maybe over the last 10 years in the use of digital tools, and maybe over the last couple of years in terms of the, the pandemic, you've touched on some of this already, but uh, what are your thoughts on, on, the, on, the, on the immediate future? In terms of I think honestly, I think um, I think there's a lot more that you know. We talk about the construction industry as this this thing that's sort of outside of ourselves, but actually we are the construction industry, aren't we? And I think um, there's an element of us, you know, taking that share in that responsibility and and changing the way that we operate as organisations within the construction industry and challenging challenging the way that things have operated for the past 10, 20 years um, and looking at new ways of working and, and new ways of having difficult conversations with clients um, and really pushing, pushing people to consider that actually we have a shared responsibility for the future. Uh, well, it's been great talking to you, Claire. Um, thanks for that, Some great insights and uh, I'll look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks, Peter. Speak soon.